Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 as we resume our study of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. I uh, come and preach this morning with a little bit of fear and reservation, not necessarily about you. If you were here last week, uh, following Gerald is not something I would recommend. But I would also say this, for those of you who were a little uptight about our uh, sound effects, we will not be doing them this week. For those of you who like the sound effects in the PowerPoint, we still won't be doing them this week. But nevertheless, uh, we'll go back and you're just stuck with boring old me. Um, so, but uh, anyway, we uh, come this morning to Revelation chapter 3, the church in Philadelphia. On a personal level, this was one that was intriguing to me because uh, as, a, as a youngster, this was probably the first church that I was aware of that were, was in the book of Revelation. Having grown up in suburban Philadelphia, I assumed it was about us. That was as spiritual as it got until much later, until after college, I actually thought maybe I should read the Bible instead of just hearing about different things that might be in there. But nevertheless, we study that letter, and the great thing about it is it is about us, not us who grew up in the suburban Pennsylvania town, but us who are God's people, who are here today. God continues to speak to us. Before we go to his word, let's go to him in prayer that he will speak to us. Our Father, we come with great delight and expectation, at least we should, because you've promised that your word does not come empty, that you are at work as we hear and commit ourselves to your word, that you will expose things in us that we may not want to see, but you will also reveal to us what we can be, what you are making us to be, if we will trust, if we will uh, allow your word to be formed both in our minds and in our hearts. But we pray to you, Lord, for all of the energy we can muster is not sufficient to bring the change that we would really want to have. We hold back. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the renewing of your work of our minds by your word, you do bring change. We die to our, our sin. We grow to be more like Jesus. This is a work of your grace. We pray that that would take place now as we consider this simple but encouraging letter. That you would speak to us. You would renew our minds. And our hearts would rejoice at the message that you speak to us. This is our prayer. We offer it in the name of the one who is the word incarnated, Christ Jesus our Lord and King. Revelation 3, beginning on verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have 
so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. During the spring of my junior year in college, I was invited by some friends who were on the soccer team to join them in their 4 by 400 meter relay team for the intramural championships at the University of Tennessee. You can't tell by looking at me now, but in the day, way, way long ago, once upon a time, I actually was a decent sprinter, decent sprinter in high school, and still had decent speed in college, though at a school the size of the University of Tennessee would nowhere near the talent to be able to run on a track team. But this was just intramurals, and so I thought this would be fun, and this was for the championship, and so it'd be enough to strike uh, my, my pride, my ego, and to at least continue to, to feel fast. And they gave me the honor of being the first leg because I was faster than all of the guys that were on the soccer team at that time. When the gun sounded, I had a good start. And as I looked over my shoulder at about the 200 meter, I was well ahead of everyone. Encouraged by the lead that I had and by not a little bit of pride, I actually turned it on a little bit more. And by the time I was approaching 300, my lead had increased and I thought this was easy. But about the middle of the curve, the last curve, something happened. My legs began to feel like lead. They were moving, but they weren't moving very fast. In one sense, everything seemed to be going in slow motion, but the only thing moving slow was me. Everything else was moving fast as people zipped by me on both sides until I was seeing everybody. And that last 100 yards, 100 meters, seemed to be a mile long. I wondered whether I would be able to even finish the race because I was just so exhausted, so spent. Then I wondered whether I wanted to finish the race. Then I wondered whether I would even live to finish the race. And then I wondered whether I even cared if I lived to finish the race. But I did finish the race. My leg, well behind everybody else, made my way to the nearest trash can and couldn't care less who won the race, but it wasn't the soccer team. It's an interesting thing as I, I think about that from time to time, both because it's humbling, but it also teaches me something. Because at that time, I was a very well-conditioned athlete, and yet I was not up to the race that I was invited to participate in. And when I think of my life, I want to make sure that my life, I, I hope that my life doesn't actually embody that same thing. I would like for my life to be one that is not only finished well, but perhaps finished better than I started. I would like to have a life that is one that was run with purpose and ultimately proves to have had meaning. But there's still a lot to go. And sometimes as you look ahead, the challenges that are before us, the length of time between where we stand now and where the end may come, can seem to be far, far away and can seem to be very, very perilous. In one sense, I think that that metaphor of that race from my college days is an appropriate metaphor to introduce the church in Philadelphia because there are 
some similarities. As we read this letter, we hear Jesus speaking to that church, and he's encouraging them because they had begun very, very well. He speaks to them, and he commends them for their faith. And he doesn't have any corrections for them whatsoever. So in one sense, they would be similar to my race up until about the 299th meter. The only thing we had in common is we still had a long way to go. But Jesus speaks only positive of them, which is unusual as he's writing these letters. As we've seen, he has no word of correction for them. He simply just encourages them. But like me at the point of the 300 meters, here's the people who are running their race running a race with faithfulness and with purpose, but they find themselves having little strength. Now, in their case, it was simply because the church was very small. In a city, it was insignificant. They had very little wealth, and they had very little influence in the place where they, where they lived. And not only were they uh, not endowed with great strength in their own right, they had also experienced a significant period of being beaten down by persistent persecution, by the haves, by the winners, by the elites, the leaders of the culture. But they continued to run. They ran not with an objective simply to win for the sake of pride, but these were people that were passionate about walking with their God, walking in a way that was honoring to him and with a zeal that their lives would be poured out within their city in order to bring about a transformation through individuals and through the culture as a whole. They wanted the gospel to be applied where people would be born anew and the culture would be uh, marked by living for God. But yet, as they continued to live their journey, they realized not only were they insignificant and not feeling that they were making much of a difference in their community, the community itself was pushing back and punishing them for their faith and for their faithfulness. And here are these people, wanting to be faithful, wanting to do well, still a long way to go, running the race and hoping to not hit a wall. The question would be, what is it that's going to keep them from hitting the wall as I did in my race? It enables them to continue to run strong, even though they themselves did not have a great deal of strength. They weren't endowed with uh, that kind of, uh, of talent, but simply with desire and focus. This letter speaks to not only that church, but to anyone who at times feels insignificant or overwhelmed or perhaps fearful of what the future may hold. And what we find in this letter uh, overarching is that the primary purpose of, uh, that Jesus has in writing to them is to encourage the believers that he's writing to in the church in Philadelphia. He was wanting to impart hope, and by that hope to grant them endurance by making them aware of the promises of God that were available to them in Christ himself. They were to find strength in those promises, or they would find, they would find their energy they, by feeding on the promises of God. And this letter is just full of promises as Jesus is speaking to the people. I'm not going to go into several of the potential doctrinal things that we can find in this letter. Most of those are actually, that, we, that are brought out at times, are wrong. Not that the letter is wrong, but people read into this letter things that are not actually there. 
but taking the, uh, the point of the letter itself, which is intended to be an encouragement to a people that were living in a culture that did not appreciate what they were doing, in fact, pushed back and persecuted them for it. I just want us to put ourselves in their position, to feel what they were feeling, and then hear what Jesus is saying, because Jesus is speaking to them to give them the encouragement, to prompt them on, is not unlike when you look at a marathon and the people that are supporters of those who are the runners in a marathon or in a, 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 a triathlon who are positioned in st strategic places along the route in order to bring encouragement and refreshment to the one who is participating. Jesus is doing that very same thing here in this letter. As they're running the race, in four specific spots, Jesus is addressing them to give them encouragement, to give them hope, to push them along as he's appealing to them with words that will encourage, excite, energize. As we look at those words and then finish up by looking at how they may apply to us as individuals, us as a church living in our day, in our culture. As Jesus is speaking to them, the first thing that he does is he makes an appeal to his own sovereignty to give them hope that he is in control. We see that in his own introduction of himself in verse 7. As he says this, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Jesus is introducing himself. When he says he's the Holy One, he's saying there is nobody else is like him. When he says he's the true one, every other is a counterfeit, that he's the only authentic one where there is hope. When he says the key of David, we get elaborated there, saying he has the key of heaven and earth, the key of salvation. He says that nobody can open a door that he has closed. Nobody can shut a door that he has opened. And this is intended to give encouragement because as they're running the race and they're wondering, not only will they finish, but will it have any meaning? Will they be able to accomplish the things that they want to accomplish along the road during their journey on this earth? One of the things that can be very frustrating is to see your labors seem to produce very little fruit, and then seeing the opportunities seem to dry up, or at least the potential opportunities to dry up before you. And as the culture was increasingly hostile to not only what they believed, but the way that they lived, and was pushing back and persecuting them for being followers of Jesus Christ, it would be very easy for them to be a little dismayed. Wanting to be faithful, they're going to press on, but they're pressing on with no hope of really having opportunity to share the gospel because the culture and the individuals they knew were closed to it, and even those that they might have an opportunity to share with, they had the obstacle of having to experience persecution. Knowing that if they shared the gospel with someone who became a believer, the likelihood is that somebody in their family, their close associates, or the culture as a whole was going to come and harm them. That makes it a hindrance the reception of the gospel. And so the one who's trying to present the gospel would be very frustrated. In fact, they may be worried about whether there would be opportunities for them, even in this life, because as things dried up for the believers, the doors were being closed. It could be very frustrating saying, I'm committed, but I don't know what is before me. And to them, Jesus is saying, look, I'm the one who holds the key to life and death, heaven and hell. I'm the one who holds the key of salvation. And one thing that you need to understand that will encourage you is you're not running your life, your, your race in vain. Because while it doesn't look like there's any opportunities, you need to know I'm the one who opens the door. And if I open the door, there's nobody that can shut the door. And if you're worried about opportunities that you might have, I can open those doors too. I am the Lord who is sovereign over all things. And so while they get to the first 
reasons that might be a detriment to their finishing the race or finishing the race strong as am I, the, the question of whether they're running the race in vain. Jesus answers that by pointing to himself and saying, trust in me. I'm the one who controls all things. From there, Jesus goes to another strategic point and he deals with the people themselves and he brings attention to, to them. He calls their attention to his awareness of their circumstance. We see this again in verse 8. Jesus says simply, I know your works. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know what's going on. This is not lost on me. I know your circumstances. I know what's going on. I know what you are doing. I'm encouraged. I'm delighted in what you are doing. I also know the environment in which you are doing it. And I know that you are doing what you are doing with little strength and little energy that you have for yourself. Jesus is bringing encouragement to these people, saying, look, I know you feel very insignificant and very small. I appreciate the endurance. You're continuing on, even though you're not seeing what you would want to see. But I want you to know I am aware. Now, in itself, that might not seem to be a a big deal. But think about your own days while you are growing up, if you have grown up. I'm dealing chronologically, not maturity here. Whether you are on one of your school teams, the band, school performance, whatever it may be, the encouragement that you received when your father, your mother, they came and just watched. They were aware. Whether you were a star or a participant, it really didn't matter. They came, they were aware, they acknowledged what you were doing. There's a tremendous encouragement just in that itself to know that the ones who love you, the one that you love, is aware, is supportive. That's an incredible encouragement that spurs on and motivates kids to continue on in whatever it is that they're trying to do or to try new things. In one sense, that's what's going on here because Jesus is saying, look, I know your works. I am aware of what's going on. I know that you're weak and you're tired. I see what's going on. That's an encouragement as well. But one thing that Jesus also does is he comes back again to the whole idea of this open and closed door because he says to them again um, at, at this point, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. As he's speaking to them and encouraging them on the faithfulness of what they are doing, reminding them that he is aware of what they're trying to do, their circumstances in which they're doing, which is encouragement itself, he also then turns their attention from their circumstances and their lack of strength, their abilities or inabilities, and he turns that attention back to himself. And he's essentially saying, you keep doing it. Because ultimately, it's not about you and what you're able to do and not able to do. Ultimately, it's about what I am able to do, and I've opened the door. And nobody's going to shut that door. What I want to happen is going to happen. If you keep running your race, you will produce the fruit. You will have the success that I want you to have. Others may think it's insignificant. You may not see it as anything great. Others may seem to do more, but you will be doing exactly what I want you to do, what I raised you up to do. You're not running your race in vain. I am aware. I am encouraged. I am delighted. I am with you, and I have opened the door, and nobody can stop my purposes. 
they continue on, Jesus addresses them at another area of their lives, and he tells them of what is to start rather than their present circumstance. He begins to point them to what happens as they approach the end of the race, giving them motive to continue to press on in their life and in their faithfulness to him because he has a promise of vindication, which begins in verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan say that they, who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and will learn that I have loved you. Now, before we jump into this, there is a clarification that needs to be made here because one of the distortions that sometimes happen is people look at this and then they say, if you go to a synagogue, then you're of Satan. Therefore, lumping all Jewish people into, into as being demonic followers or, or satanic followers. That's not what this passage is saying at all. In fact, Jesus was speaking to people that primarily had been Jews and would continue to identify themselves as Jews. It's just that the other Jews, those who had not embraced the promised Messiah, were pushing them out of the synagogue, out of the teaching. And so the believers in Christ had to worship on their own. The problem then also was that these people who were declaring themselves to be the Jews, God's people, it wasn't sufficient to them to push the followers of Christ out of their synagogue, but they began to be the initiators of the persecution. The church here was not being persecuted by the pagan world. They were being persecuted by those who were claiming to be Jews. And Jesus here is simply clarifying that my people, who are the Jews, are the ones who believe in my promises. But if somebody's opposing my purposes, opposing the church, then they are in league with, with my enemy. And therefore, using the play on words, who are saying they claim to be Jews, but they're not really Jews because the Jewish people will not be hostile to God. These people were, and so he declares themselves to be, he declares them to be a synagogue of Satan. And he's saying, essentially, your enemies, the ones who oppose you, the ones who oppress you, the ones who are not only getting in your way, but intentionally trying to stop you from having joy in this life and fruitfulness in, in your labors. There's a day that's going to come, and their eyes will be open, and they will know the truth. Some will be converted, and they will declare with great joy that Jesus is king. Others will more likely cry uncle because they have lost. They will know that Jesus is enthroned. And the greatest promise that he has here that I think that we need to take in consideration is the mark that will vindicate them the most is they will know, everyone will know, is that I have loved you. Not that I will love you when you win the race. Not that I will love you when you're significant. I have loved you means all along. I loved you when you were insignificant. I loved you when you were weak. I loved you when you were wondering and wandering and when you were not strong in yourself. Because again, it's not about you. It's not about what strength you have. It's not about how good you are. It's all about Christ and whether we are resting in him and getting our strength in him. And that, when we are doing that, that is the evidence of the fact that God has loved us in the first place because we are told, Paul very clearly says in, in Romans, we, we only believe if God has granted us the grace to believe. It is a gift. It's a gift that comes from the love of God. He's saying that it's not only will you know but the entire world is going to know that I have loved you. When you're tired, when you're worn out, when you're lacking focus, 
when you're wondering whether you can do what you want to do for God, whether you can walk with him, to hear the words, not only I will love you, I do love you, I have always loved you. The words of encouragement. And then there is an aspect in which we want for others to know that what we've been doing, what we've been suffering, what we've been experiencing, there was a purpose in it. Those who doubted, those who persecuted, will one day know you are God's people, the objects of his affection, the ones who he has loved. As they're nearing that final of the race, Jesus gives them these final words of encouragement. He promises a day that there will be a deliverance. The race will be over and the, one who, the ones who are with him will clearly win because as we see beginning in verse 10, Jesus says this, well, excuse me, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus is saying it may seem far away. But the fellowship that you desire when you're walking with me, that you're only experiencing in part now, there is coming a day, and it's not that far off, that you and I will be fully together. I will come back. And the promise of Jesus coming back is all of the promises of deliverance, all the promises of victory, all the promises of sin being wiped away, all the promises of pain, suffering, agony, all of those things are gone as we walk with him, and that is the greatest victory crown that anybody could possibly desire. Jesus is saying it's not that far off, but here's what you need to do. You need to hold on to what you have. Now, he could have said keep pressing on because that's words that were used elsewhere. Paul says, this I do, forgetting what's past, I press on, and just kind of encourage and go to keep on going. But that's not what Jesus says here. His words to them are not just keep on going. He says hold on to what you have. And so the question is, what is it that they have that he's calling them to hold on to? Well, it's not their stuff. Most of them didn't have any stuff. They were poor. They were outcasts, but what they did have is faith in the one who was sent by the Father to pay the price for their sin and to an exchange of their sin gave them the righteousness and the right to be called children of God. See, that's the hope, that's the foundation of everything. And Jesus is saying, look, I'll be back soon. But in the meantime, here's what you do. Hold on to your faith. See, it's the faith in the gospel that propels them to continue on. It gives them the strength. It gives them the focus. It gives them the courage. Everything that is needed comes in our believing all that has been promised in Jesus. But Jesus encourages us away, and the words that he's speaking to them should be a reminder to us. There's no need to say, hold on, if we are not inclined to let go. Not necessarily let go entirely like we don't believe it anymore, but when we are holding on, encouraged to hold on, we are realizing that the gospel is our only hope in every aspect of our lives. And when we realize that we're holding on to that faith, it continues to impact every way that we live. That's what gives us encouragement, strength, and endurance. It's also what brings joy, pleasure, and glory to God our Father. Jesus is speaking these words to the church that church in Philadelphia, and to our church here today. So I look at this passage, and it is both an encouragement, but it's also, it is also instructive in a few ways. 
one reason it's an encouragement is because we live in a culture where I think most of us would acknowledge that the influence of the church has been declining. In fact, the world around us not only just doesn't care, but there is a pushback against the church. Now, a lot of the pushback, we have to admit, is because we've been obnoxious for a long time. We have abused the privilege of being children of God, and rather than loving our neighbors as we have been loved, we have force-fed people to obey certain rules or else. And that's the collective picture that the unbelieving world has of the church, and it's not entirely wrong. And for that, we, as God's people, need to repent. Even if you personally have not been a jerk, we have enough jerks among us that we have asked for the pushback that we are receiving. And a lot of what we're seeing in our culture is our fault. John Stott once said, you don't blame meat for rotting. You blame the salt for not preserving. If you are one who is dismayed by our culture, what do you think the world is supposed to do? What do you think the culture is supposed to do? But rather than preserving like we should do, we have been unnecessarily offending, not for the sake of the gospel, but for the sake of our privilege. But that said, whatever the reasons are, and the world didn't need help to disagree because the gospel is offensive. We are told that the the gospel, those who are the believers, would be the aroma of life to those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are dying. It's quite a disgusting picture. So if people are offended, then that's understandable. But it's just the way that it is. Some of you are working in environments that are, you're seeing that being a believer is not only not respected, but people will, if they're nice, will just kind of say, well, that's nice. In some cases, you may be working in environments where people are outright hostile to the fact that you are proclaiming to live as a follower of Christ and that you want others to have that same experience. You may feel insignificant in your place where you live or where you work. You feel like you're having very little influence or the potential of your influence seems to be diminishing. This is a letter that is written to you and to me and to say, even if that's the way that it looks to you, there's no reason to dismay. Because all of the things that Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia are true for you and for me, that he is the one who is in control. He opens a door, no one can shut it. And even though there are people trying to open other doors and saying there are many ways in which we can go to God, Jesus says, if I shut a door, nobody's opening it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way. But because he is the way, and because he is in control, and because he is sovereign over all things, even though we may not see the grand impact that we would like to see. You and your faithfulness and consistency, your endurance will make a difference. It's instructional to us in another way that's more confrontational than it is encouraging. Because one of the things that he's not saying to these people is, you know, I understand where you live and it is rough, so just hold on. Hold on together. Go hide out. I'll be back and get you soon. Don't worry about finishing this race. It'll just be painful for you. 
What Jesus says is continue to go about your business, which is the people who are passionate about living in their community, loving their neighbors, reaching their culture, impacting that even when their neighbors were hostile to them, they were investing themselves in the community. And this instruction, encouragement to continue on, speaks to the church that has a tendency at times to withdraw from the community where we live. When we hide out in Christian ghettos, which some sociologists call, we create little subcultures. We interact only within the church or with others within the church. And we have no real interaction with the community at large. This is speaking to us and saying that's not the, the, what Jesus has instructed us. He sent us on a race. We are running our race, living our lives for the glory of God. He has placed us where we live for the purpose of having an impact. While that potential seems to be small, it is what God has ordained. And the only way that we are going to be faithful is if we actually continue to live that race and interact with other people. And it is a challenge to us not to withdraw, but to continue to engage even if we're rejected. But the overarching tone of this letter is one of encouragement to you and to me because it does tell us that if we will hold on to the faith, hold on to what we have been given, which is Christ himself, and we live that way, faithfully, we will experience some difficulties, hardships. But we will have the joy of seeing fruit. We will have the joy of being with him. We will have the joy of being vindicated and being known that we are loved. And we will have the joy of seeing others come and join us as well. This is a letter that is written to us as a church, to God's church everywhere, to direct us, to encourage us, to continue us, to do what we know to be right, to conform ourselves to what he says, to do what we're called to do, not to stop, not to shrink, not to run away. It's a promise of fruitfulness. It's a promise of significance, even if nobody recognizes it. It's a promise that when you run the race, even if you sometimes are scarred, are hitting a wall, continuing with any fruit is beneficial. I use a different illustration in the first service, but for both my own heritage and for campers' benefit, I'll use another one, because it would be remiss to go to the church in Philadelphia without talking about endurance in this. I'm sure you all have seen Rocky, and Rocky won when he says, I can't win. I can't beat this guy. He is better than I am. I'm not even in this guy's league. But as he's talking, and he says to Adrian at the time, but if I can just go the distance, if I can just endure and finish People will know that I'm not some bum from the neighborhood. It would have been a better, if you'd have heard me when I was in junior high school, still lived in Philadelphia, when, you know, uh, I would use guys came out more fluidly than now y'all. But anyway, that's, but the point is still the same. God is pleased. We continue to engage even if we assume there is no way we can win. Because as Rocky II shows us, but more important, as God tells us, it's not about whether we are as good or as strong. It's about whether God is at work in us and he has promised to be. Be encouraged. Be faithful. Be hopeful. Father, we give thanks to you. This letter is a reminder to us that it's not those who are great in the eyes of anyone. It's not those who are significant. 
not those who have accumulated certain accomplishments for the resume that you are impressed with or even notice. But you notice us, even if nobody else does. You love us, even if no one else is aware of it. And you have appointed us for our time, our place, and your purpose. Father, may you, by these words, continue to encourage us as a body and as individuals to run our race, whether we are weary or wounded, whether we are newly exhilarated. Continue. And while we are running, may we experience the joy of your presence with us. This we pray with the hope that comes from the promises that you have made to us. In Christ Jesus.